Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Become a member today at dfwworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. As a resident of the District of Columbia, I can talk about failed democracies. We, <laughs> at length. <laughs> right. But uh, thank you for coming. It's a pleasure to be here in Dallas. I haven't been here in about five years, I was just realizing, and I hope I get a chance to see a little of the city later on. I, it was my privilege to chair this study group uh, over the summer and fall. It was a time when um, there was a lot of, um, there was more concern about Iran being on the verge of acquiring nuclear weapons. The Israeli government was persuaded that they were on the verge of this capability and was actively lobbying in Washington for the U.S. to conduct a military strike against the nuclear infrastructure. And we put this group together, it had Iranian experts um, as well as experienced uh, U.S. diplomats and military officials, a couple of retired admirals and people who served in both Republican and Democratic uh, administrations in the Pentagon. And our focus is on the nuclear weapons issue. The U.S. and Iran have a whole range of issue, be issues between us, including their abysmal human rights uh, record and performance, lack of democracy, and so forth, the opposite sides of uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, of course, their support of terrorism. And they have their own grievances. We supported Iraq during their long war with Iraq. We shot down a passenger jet by mistake, but uh, killed uh, several hundred Iranians. There's no shortage of grievances, but the most immediate issue is, uh, we think, Iran's quest for nuclear weapons and what the U.S. can do to stop it. They've been at it a long time. They started in the mid-1980s uh, during the war uh, with Iraq. They haven't made uh, progress nearly as quickly as, as many other countries have done. The official estimate is that they're still three to five years away from having a weapons capability and uh, even the Israelis relaxed about it in December. They, uh, there were several statements that indicated they no longer thought an Iranian weapon was imminent but it was three to five years away. They are enriching uranium, which is an important um, obstacle. You have to be able to enrich uranium so that it's over 90% the isotope which causes the critical mass and, and the explosion, and that's difficult technically. And their program seems to have been slowed considerably by two things. One, um, some countries, who knows who, are carrying out covert operations to sabotage the program. You've all read about the computer worm, but there were many other things. Uh, and secondly, the sanctions, which uh, both the UN 
and more strongly individual countries, including all the world's advanced economies, have put on Iran, have forced them into the black market to get the kinds of specialized materials they need for nuclear equipment and materials. And the funny thing about being in the black market is you don't know who you're dealing with. So it's been possible for some clever intelligence agencies to uh, sell um, uh, materials to them which somehow didn't quite work the way they were supposed to and that's delayed their program as well. But they are progressing and if things don't change they will, if they choose to do so, be able to build a weapon in something like three to five years. So how do you stop them? One thing uh, which our group stressed um, and as I say, there are a number of Iranian experts on the group, and I'm an expert on U.S. political military options, not on Iran, but I've learned a great deal. But what they stressed is that within the Iranian elites, there is a very um, uh, uh, tense political conflict going on. Um, I was just reading, actually, in the lobby, a report from the Washington Institute about the latest development in this, in that uh, Ahmadinejad, the president, fired the uh, head of their intelligence, and uh, Khamenei, the supreme leader, said, oh no, you don't, I want him back in there. So there's this constant struggle going on, and essentially it's, it's sort of like um, when Andrew Jackson became president. This was a great shock to the Washington elites at the time. Jackson was a uh, southerner, westerner, and he came into Washington with all these kind of frontiersmen and the elites in Washington didn't like it at all and there was a kind of struggle in the U.S. at that time. It's very similar. Ahmadinejad is uh, not from the elites that have ruled Iran since the Islamic uh, Revolution and he's been trying to muscle into their territory particularly their economic territory. And it's uh, through the Revolutionary Guards. The people with him are all veterans of the Iran-Iraq War. And there's this conflict between the traditional elites that have wrested the benefits of being in charge of an undemocratic country and this new group. And um, the struggle plays out in many ways, but one of them is the nuclear issue, in that the, the existing elites argue that Ahmadinejad, with his uh, defiant nuclear policy, his refusal to negotiate a resolution with the U.S. and all, most of all the rest of the countries in the world, is isolating Iran delaying its economic development, causing real hardships for the people, and that this could lead to demonstrations and unrest and a, a danger to the Islamic Republic itself. And demonstrations not uh, just by the um, westernized uh, people, which were the ones demonstrating in 2009 after the rigged election, but demonstrations by the kind of working classes, the people that are the base of support for the Islamic Republic. So 
The question is, how can the United States and its allies affect that debate so that the more pragmatic people, the ones that want to see Iran um, gain the benefits of normal relationships with the advanced countries of the world, how, how can you affect that balance so the pragmatists uh, become dominant and they become willing to negotiate an agreement? Well, one option uh, has been to threaten or to use military force. That's the one that gets the most attention. Um, our study group came out unanimously against that. Uh, we think that would be a very bad idea for a number of reasons. Um, it would not be a quick, you know, just knock out this one facility and, and they're on their knees kind of thing. It would be uh, an air campaign that would last many weeks. We would not only have to destroy a dozen or so facilities associated with the nuclear program, but to limit Iran's retaliation for that, we would also attempt to destroy as much of its armed forces as possible. So it would be a large uh, air operation. Iran would retaliate. It's a large country. It has uh, strong armed forces. It has the support, it supports terrorist organizations like Hezbollah. Um, it could retaliate by attacking Israel through these terrorist organizations. It could attack uh, U.S. forces in the Persian Gulf. It could attack high-value uh, facilities like oil transshipment points and disrupt oil coming out of the Gulf. You could imagine the economic effects. Uh, you know, oil, uh, gasoline is already five bucks, four bucks a gallon in Washington. I don't know what it is here, but if oil coming out of the Persian Gulf would disrupt it, I hate to think. Where, where the price of oil would go and what that would do to the economy. But most importantly, the group thought that by threatening or actually using force, this would only unite Iranians behind the regime and its nuclear program. It would lend cred credence to what is the founding myth of the Islamic Republic, which is that Iran has been um, abused by and is continually threatened by the United States and its allies. So instead of military force, and particularly in view of the um, longer window we have until they are on the verge of a weapons capability, we thought um, it's important to give diplomacy uh, more of a chance than it's been given so far. And this means um, providing the promise of incentives to Iran of what they would gain if they did reach an agreement with us. Most importantly, this means uh, that we would have to accept their right to enrich uranium up to the level that's useful in power reactors, reactors that generate electricity. There's no um, international law against that. There's no treaty that prohibits that. Many countries enrich uranium to that level. Brazil, for example, Japan, many European countries. 
It's been the U.S. position that Iran has to give up that capability, and that's been a real sticking point. Um, given the history of their program and the overwhelming evidence that they are seeking a weapons capability, we believe that although they should be permitted to enrich uranium if they choose to do so, that has to come with certain conditions. One, that it only be enriched to the 5% level, um, which is useful for power reactors, nothing near the 90% that you need for weapons, that only certain amounts be permitted to be retained in the country and these be safeguarded by the uh, International Atomic Energy Agency, that they sign, there's something called the additional protocol. All the countries that are members of the non-proliferation treaty, their declared nuclear facilities are inspected regularly by the International Atomic Energy Agency, IAEA for short. Um, and the nuclear materials are safeguarded. There are seals put on them, there's an audit made of how much, so they can't be diverted into secret weapons programs. But it's only for declared facilities. Now Iran has had secret facilities that have been uncovered by um, intelligence or by whistleblowers, particularly the enrichment facility at Natanz. So the additional protocol, which has been signed and implemented by many countries now, and which Iran did sign and start to implement but stopped, permits the IAEA to inspect undeclared facilities. So if somehow a satellite uh, or a defector says, oh, they are secretly building yet another enrichment facility, you know, at this base here or this place, the IAEA would have the right to insist on inspecting it with you know, very short notification and so forth. So that would be part of the agreement. So we could have confidence that if they agreed not to uh, enrich to weapons grade, uh, we could have confidence that they weren't secretly uh, doing it at the same time. Secondly, we thought the US and Iran should have separate bilateral discussions of issues of common concern. <clears throat> now we're not going to resolve <clears throat> all our issues with Iran anytime soon and maybe you know forever, but there are some things in which we can cooperate. Afghanistan is one of them. The Iranians were very helpful actually uh, immediately after 9-11 when the U.S. invaded Afghanistan, they have close ties with the northern tribes and they were helpful in, in um, facilitating the invasion and its success and then in establishing the, the Karzai government that followed. That ended when uh, President Bush declared them part of the axis of evil and so forth. But there was a period of two to two and a half years where they were helping us in Afghanistan. That's one thing we could talk about. A second thing is the drug trade. Most of the heroin in the world comes from, starts in Afghanistan, and is transshipped through Iran uh, into uh, Russia or into Western, through Turkey into Western Europe. 
a lot of it stays in Iran. Iran has huge drug drug problem of its own. Um, so we have a common interest in trying to stop the flow of drugs over that uh, well-known route. That's another thing we could talk about. A third thing would be the possibility that if Iran, you know, reached this agreement to stop its weapons programs, that Western oil companies and their technologies could help Iran re, uh, rebuild and develop its oil and gas resources. They have huge reserves of oil and gas. It would be in our interest to see production go up. They have not been able to develop it because of the sanctions. There are no Western oil and gas companies operating in Iran. The French pulled out, finally. The Italians pulled out. Even the Russians have pulled out. Um, the Chinese have contracts with Iran, but they're not implementing them because, because of the sanctions. So um, Iran's whole economic future depends on developing these resources. You know, other than pistachio nuts, that's about all they have uh, to export. And their development plans really hinge on being able to produce more oil and particularly more natural gas. They have these huge offshore deposits, uh, but nothing's being done with them. So we could offer that as the concrete benefit of reaching agreement with us not to develop nuclear weapons. Now, you know, uh, President, uh, well, President, toward the end of the Bush administration, the U.S. began to indicate it would be willing to talk and sent observers to the talks are called P5 plus one. It's the permanent members of the UN Security Council plus Germany representing the rest of the European Union. Uh, that, that group talks with Iran about the nuclear issue. Um, so during the, at the end of the Bush administration, the U.S. sent observers to those talks. The U.S. has participated as a full member uh, since President Obama took office. Um, he made a speech offering these negotiations. He wrote a letter to, uh, to uh, Khamenei, I believe. Uh, but there's been, um, there hasn't been the concerted push to get the negotiations started, uh, which we think uh, is necessary to sway that balance in Tehran. To say, not only are we not uh, we don't want to go to war with you if we can help it, but we, if you reach agreement, there'll be all these positive, uh, positive benefits uh, to your country. Um, it's uh, what we call the least bad option, you know. I wouldn't say it has a, uh, it maybe has a 50% chance of success, that might be optimistic. The politics in each country uh, work against it. In Iran, um, it hurts to be seen to be soft on the great Satan, as they call us. In Washington, it certainly hurts to be seen to be soft on Iran, and that limits each country's ability to move uh, toward negotiations. As a hedge, the last thing we recommend, and then I'll open up to questions, is that we have to prepare to be able to contain and deter a nuclear-armed Iran should it come to that. Uh, this group, at least, and I personally believe, 
that that would be better than going to war with Iran. We don't need yet another war in the Middle East, and one that's likely to be at least as difficult, if not more so, than the Iraq war was a few years ago. Um, we believe we could contain even a nuclear-armed Iran uh, by continuing to develop close military ties with the Arab nations along the Gulf, which are, have their own reasons to be hostile uh, to Iran, and with which we work with already. Uh, we feel we particularly need to develop their missile defense capability. We do this in East Asia with Japan and South Korea to contain North Korea. We think we can do it with the Persian Gulf countries to contain a nuclear-armed uh, Iran. And there are many other things that are, there are copies of this outside if you want to see any of the details in all this. Um, but that's essentially it. Um, there is time. Sanctions and covert operations are putting pressure on Iran to reach agreement. Beefing up the positive side of the policy, we think, could help sway the balance in Tehran and perhaps lead to serious negotiations and a settlement uh, that would protect everyone's interests. So let me stop there, and um, I can hide behind here if you want to throw stuff, but I'm happy to answer your questions. One of the things I'd heard in a, another gathering had to do with uh, education being provided by sources that are more radical based. Uh, and I don't know if that's in Iran or other parts of the Middle East, but I guess my question would be, is that occurring there that you, know, you can either get educated here or there's this other source that's funded by radical thinking? So if that's true, I want to know if there's an opportunity to affect the country through other opportunities of education. If there is a, another free source that is not as radical, is that an opportunity for change? Uh, well, the U.S. does uh, sponsor radio and television broadcasts into Iran and increasingly tries to get um, internet kinds of things um, into the country. It's, it's difficult. They try, they try to block, block them. There are, there is um, this one organization called uh, MEK, which um, some people in Congress think the U.S. should support. Others have said we should support uh, minority groups in Iran that might uh, cause civil conflict within the country. Um, personally, I don't think that's a good idea. I think that, again, would just unify the Persian core of the country, but there certainly are. We should certainly be straightforward in making clear our uh, concern about uh, the human rights situation in Iran, their um, arrests and torture and sometimes murder of dissidents, um, and the lack of free elections. They have uh, parliamentary elections in 2012 and um, perhaps some pressure could be put on to see that those are not rigged quite as brazenly as the presidential election was. But um, yeah, I th there are certainly things we could do in the area of public diplomacy we have been doing and we could certainly be doing more.
as well. I would think most people in Congress would support uh, engagement, considering we do have a window. They argue how long that window is. So I, it's hard to see why people would oppose that. But there's another perspective. If I'm Israel, I may say, okay, do that now. But if I get to the point where I think six months from now they're going to have the bomb, it's a matter of survival of my country. I'm going to throw everything I have to attack them. And I'll, we're not going to stop them. We may end up helping them. So it seemed like there is a window. I think I foresee military actions on the certainty if you know, we decide, yeah, they're going to have it in a few months. Well, that was the situation this summer. And the Israelis uh, did try to persuade us and this was the second time, and they also did it at the end of the Bush administration, uh, to persuade us to carry out the strike. They really don't have the resources to do the kind of job that would have to be done. They could delay the program, punch some holes in it, but they don't have the resources that we have to do it. Um, but as I say, you know, for whatever reason, they've changed their assessment and we have a more leisurely assessment, so this is not an imminent issue. Um, and certainly the U.S. wouldn't try to stop Israel if they decided to act on their own, but I don't know that we would, you know, join in a strike. There's the military, our military is dead set against it. Uh, one of the members of my group was uh, the former Central Command commander, Admiral Fallon, and he would just foam at the mouth at the thought of us getting into a war in Iran when we're already, you know, still pulling out of Iraq and deeply involved in Afghanistan. I just thought it was uh, crazy. You know, his opposition. Well, he was a little too public about it. Right? I really enjoy your speak. By the way, I'm Iranian. I think I'm the only Iranian here. Um, things that you said and that your study group did, uh, I'm really impressed by it. And uh, I think this is what we really need in this country, to uh, have people study what's actually going on and give their recommendation to the, to the government. But one thing that we like as opposition, uh, we like to see is that by negotiating with Iran, you're not forgetting the human rights issue. And Iranian human rights issue should be on top of the discussion when you're talking to Iran. Iran is a, um, like a situation in Iran is, that I'm sure you know that the Supreme Leader has a cancer. He's dying. Ahmadinejad is uh, he's not popular at all. He doesn't have uh, people supporting him at all, basically. He's, uh, Every time I call Iran, people they're just saying that, my God, like, we don't want this guy. It's, it's a, the shame of him as a president, basically. And this is his second term, then he has no chance of being reelected again. That's done with him. Something that maybe Americans, they don't know about Iran is that Iranian people, they are very different from the Iranian government. Iranian people, they are unbelievably want to have a relationship with the West, especially with Americans. They have a good history with America during the Shah, Shah of Iran. We had a relationship here, and people they still have a memory, and they really want to be uh, part of the, uh, the, the free world. 
And this is something that you should count on it, that if there will be some support uh, for the Iranian people, the Iranian people managed to overthrow their own government, and they will be definitely like to be part of the world, and they want to, the first thing is they want to have a relationship with Iran, with the US. It's amazing, Iran is 70% young, young people. All of them, if they allow them to leave the country, and the first stop will be US. They love to come here and live here. And this is, tells you that you have to be careful. The policy that we are making here, it makes sure that this policy not affecting Iranian people directly in, like by war or killing them or whatever. Because these people, they are pro-West. These people, they want to be part of the free world. Uh, as I said, I just want to make sure that by uh, this conversation we have, we are not forgetting mm -hmm. the human rights in Iran. The uh, Iranian Green Movement is very much alive, very much alive, very active. And we want to make sure that we're not sacrificing this. For the relationship with Iran, we're not sacrificing uh, this. It was, uh, this, is a real, this is a real dilemma for U.S. policy vis-a-vis -vis Iran and other countries, China, for example. And it was uh, uh, hotly debated, and we, had, we broke into uh, working groups within the study group, and there was one on Iranian politics. And that group particularly debated the question of, do you legitimate this repressive government by negotiating with them or offering to negotiate, um, isn't it better to wait for the populist movement to be more successful? And in the end, the conclusion was that we couldn't wait on this issue, that the nuclear issue was too important, that we should speak up for human rights and support the democracy movement as best we could. But the reality was that we had to deal with the elites that were in charge if we were going to stop this program uh, short of a weapons capability. So somehow you have to walk that fine line. Basically, I have two questions I'm curious to get your opinion on. One is, it seems as an outsider, just kind of trying to watch as much as we can see, that there really isn't a thing that we can do, really do, to stop the Iranians from moving forward and developing a nuclear weapon short of some sort of military action. So I'm curious, number one, whether or not you know, your, group, your group believes that to be the case or do they believe that there's really something that we can do? Not that we should continue to try to do, but really can do. Question number one. And the second thing I'm curious about is whether or not uh, what's really driving the Ahmadinejad government in its anti-US, is it strictly an ideological issue or is there something else behind it, i.e. territorial power, an influence or something else that's driving its tremendously vociferous anti-U.S. Uh, uh, position? Um, on the first question, we do believe we can delay the program. You know, the official est We went back to see when people were predicting they'd have a weapon publicly. In the mid-90s, um, the Israeli foreign minister said they would have a weapon by the end of the century. That was the last century. So the program has been delayed. Now, as I say, it's three to five years. We think it can continue to be delayed by two things. 
the sanctions, enforcing the sanctions strongly. And there's been a lot of progress made. You know, there's the UN sanctions, which just deal directly with the nuclear program and with conventional arms. But more importantly, there are the unilateral sanctions that the United States, the European Union, the Japanese, the Koreans, all the world's advanced economies have put on, which say, if you're going to do business with Iran, you're not going to do business with us. And uh, so we go to a bank in Turkey and that we get intelligence is going to finance some pipeline project uh, and say, okay, you want to do this $50 million deal with Iran? Or do you want to have access to all the world's advanced economies? And the trade-off is pretty. And they've really made a lot of progress through that. Through it's the Department of Treasury is the cutting edge of this, and the European uh, ministries. Um, Dubai, which was the home for the front companies, Iran would set up these front companies in Dubai, and they'd buy some you know, a special lens that could be used in a nuclear weapon. It has other uses, so you can't say it's for nuclear. And it goes through Malaysia and to this company in Dubai and then gets put on a Dow and shipped right across the Gulf. Dubai has shut down virtually all those countries, uh, companies uh, since these sanctions went on. And there are other things being done. The Saudis are selling discounted oil to the Japanese and the Koreans in order to take contracts away from Iran so they don't uh, gain the income from it. And all these things are affecting the economic situation uh, and the weapons program specifically. The, the hope is, I mean, if, if they won't engage diplomatically, the hope is that the sanctions will cause so much difficulty that there will be an upswelling of popular unrest, as we've seen now. And I mean, the Iranians have mixed views over what's going on in Egypt and Tunisia and other countries. They say, oh, on the one hand, uh, the stooges of the United States have been thrown out. On the other hand, they don't like <laughs> that governments have been overthrown. So if... Uh, you know, if the working classes really rose up because their economic situation, the unemployment's like 25% in Iran now. And if the uh, working classes rose up, and that would be a way to stop the program, short of that. Your second question Ahmadinejad is a real nationalist. In fact, he's criticized by the religious authorities for being too Persian rather than. Muslim. In fact, he talks about um, Iranian uh, Islam as if it were different than Islam, and the religious authorities criticize him for that. So he has a bigger agenda. He wants to rebuild the, the glory of the Persian Empire uh, by subverting the government in Bahrain, for example, which they've tried to do, and by spreading both Shia, the Shia brand of Muslims, and and a Persians, uh, Persia's influence throughout the region. So, uh, my my question is rather a specific one about that uh, level of enrichment, uh, which, as you said, uh, uh, one of the conditions would be to keep it uh, low. 
uh, one of the conditions of agreement. Uh, they would have, they, uh, Iranian would have, Iran would have the uh, right to enrich Iranian, uh, uh, uranium up to that level. Uh, but there has been, as you know, uh, an effort uh, a few years ago, it was, uh, to make an exchange of uh, low enriched income, uh, 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 uranium, uh, for uh, uh, higher enriched uranium, which would be used in a, a reactor, an existing reactor there, which I believe we, the United States, helped them to get years ago in the Shah's period. Uh, but it needs uh, to have new uh, fuel rods. Uh, that didn't work out, that agreement. It seemed to get a, be getting close for a time. Uh, then uh, there was an offer by uh, Turkey and Brazil together who were going to uh, make up uh, somehow to arrive at that uh, level. Uh, uh, Brazil does have the possibility of doing this, I suppose, itself. Uh, and to make an exchange then. Meanwhile, uh, that, uh, that didn't come through either. And meanwhile, of course, Iran has continued producing uh, more uranium. And I understand they are, they have said, and they have begun producing the 20% or so uh, enriched uranium. Are we going to live with that? Or will we, uh, if they continue to do that, which they say they're doing for this, uh, these other non-military purposes. Right. You know, your history is totally correct. They have a research uh, medical reactor in Tehran, which we gave to them uh, during the Shah's period, which produces isotopes, like for cancer treatments. And uh, that requires uranium enriched to 20%. And they have enriched some small amount uh, to that uh, to that level. They do not have the capability to fabricate it into fuel the fuel rods. You don't just take the raw uranium. You have to shape it, and it's difficult to work with because it's radioactive. Um, and so the, the deal was struck, and the Iranian negotiators agreed to it in Geneva. And then they came home, and Ahmadinejad nixed, uh, nixed the deal. And then the Turkish-Brazilian thing happened a year later, and it was on the eve of the sanctions vote, and we weren't about to change course at that uh, point. But. Um, <clears throat> As part of the agreement, we foresee they would not be permitted to have 20% enriched uranium in the country, except that in the form of the fuel rods they need uh, for their medical reactors. Um, they would be permitted to have some stock of the 5% enriched, which is the level used for power reactors. The 20% is still well below what you need for a, a weapon, but it's it's closer and it's not a linear, it gets processed, it uh, gets easier the higher, the higher you get. So, but it actually, which brings to uh, one of your questions about stopping them, um, it's not just getting the enriched 
uranium, and it's not just having the weapons design, which you can get the rudimentary parts any of us can on, on the internet now. You have to be able to work with the uranium. You have to fashion it for, for, uh, into fuel rods or uh, for a bomb. There's a couple of designs, but one is uh, uh, spheres. They shape it into two halves of a, of a sphere, which are separated. Um, and ex conventional explosives put around it. And there's this fancy and very difficult system which then uh, pushes them together when the bomb creates a critical mass and the bomb explodes. Machining the uranium into that is no easy matter. So there are other steps that are required before they have the capability. So we, there are, there are um, obstacles. There are ways to gain confidence that even if they are enriching uranium to a low level, they're well short of a weapon and there would be s significant warning before they went that way. Uh, I've been amazed that um, even in Syria, Assad has not been able to stifle the unrest there. So it can happen in a place as tyrannical as uh, Syria or Iran. What I don't understand is why haven't we used the ultimate sanction against Iran, which is gasoline? They have no gasoline. They cannot refine it. Why can't we cut them off and get the people so irate because they don't have gasoline or the price goes to $20 a gallon? Yes, that's, um, there is uh, legislation that's been introduced into the House Foreign Affairs Committee that would impose a, an embargo on gasoline. It's not clear, though, whether um, the Europeans would be willing to go along with that, the thought being that that's punishing just ordinary people rather than um, the leadership. There's also legislation that would have a, <laughs> we bomb enough people <laughs> as it is. <laughs> there's, uh, there's also legislation that's been introduced to have a complete embargo on Iran to stop all imports and exports. And that might be a necessary step if there were a serious continued serious efforts at negotiations that just don't go anywhere. Maybe that's the next logical step. They have rejiggered some of their refineries to, so they can produce more gasoline than they used to be in anticipation of this, but there would still be shortages. Uh, I wanted to ask a question about the sanctions working. Last week in Germany, I saw a six or seven meter di uh, diameter precision bearing ring about the size of that whole window section. They reminded me of seeing one on a train in eastern Turkey uh, in 2009, and I asked the driver, what is the, where is that going? Because there were no industrial cities hmm. to the southeast of Kaiserai where, where we were, and he grinned at me, and knowing I'm an American, said, hmm. well, that's going to Iran. And I said, where's it coming from? He said, Germany. And i fairly convinced he was yanking my chain, but it made me a little edgy as to whether or not the sanctions are actually working. Mm -hmm. uh, they're working a lot better than, than they used to be. 2009 was before uh, we and the European Union put on these additional sanctions. The UN sanctions, which were the only ones in effect 
at that time, and not the latest round, would not have prohibited that kind of enterprise. But now it would be. So the financial sanctions, which only were put on a year ago, less than a year, in July of last year, have made all the difference. That's for more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.